Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to episode number 78 of Thyroid Nation Radio Live Talk Show and Podcast. I'm Dana Bowman, founder of ThyroidNation.com. And I'm Tiffany Malavnich of Grateful Garden Not Big. Today we are talking with Dr. Kevin Passero about thyroid, hormones, and mood disorders and the connection, the link between the two. <laughs> Such a great topic. People are misdiagnosed and undiagnosed, and he's got such a wealth of information. I had the privilege of meeting him and sitting in on one of his uh, seminars back in March, I believe, with Mary Showman, and he was fabulous. I was crying at the end of this his uh, talk because it just it hit so close to home. So I'm absolutely thrilled to um, have him on the show today. Crazy important topic, huh? All right, so if you've missed any of the Thyroid Nation radio podcasts, you can very easily download and listen to them at your leisure, which is very nice, on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and Acast. I frequently do that when I'm driving somewhere and just turn one of those on and re-listen to it. Very easy to do. Very easy to do, and so many episodes. I can't believe we're in our 78th episode. (laughs) I was just thinking that when you said that this morning. I was like, wow, 78 episodes. It's How lucky crazy. are we? Um, we are so lucky. I mean, really, we are. Oh, yeah. And I was looking at the lineup, um, and and I had talked to someone with um, Dr. Ben Lynch. I'm determined that he's coming on the show, so that is happening. Just wait. Um, that would be awesome. MTHFR is just such you know an important topic. But you know, I was looking at. Um, I was thinking, oh gosh, Dr. Passero. That's I'm so excited, and then we have Teresa Tapp, whom I also met at Mary's weekend. She's going to be on next week, and that's going to be just a fun show. Today's going to be very informative and all that kind of stuff. And then we have, um, let's see, Mike. Uh, no, sorry. Yeah, uh, Michael McAvoy. And then we have Dr. David Bornstein. Then Dr. Amy Myers. Then Dr. David Brady. Then Dr. Carolyn Dean. I mean, it's just a uh, it's just, we're so lucky. I mean, I just can't believe we get to talk to all these people, and uh, especially to Dr. Passero, because he really hit home with me. So I hope he does the same for you guys. Well, and Dr. Amy Myers, too. I know we get so many questions regarding hyperthyroidism <clears throat> and Graves and everything, and she is the hyperthyroid and Graves guru. She just had a book that came out. So it's just amazing. It's amazing who we I know. We're so lucky. Okay, Dr. Passero is a licensed naturopathic doctor and graduated from one of the only eight accredited naturopathic medical schools in North America. His mission is to bring cutting-edge natural and holistic therapy to the Washington, D.C. metro area and worldwide and to educate people on the value of naturopathic medicine across the country. His practice at the Green Healing Wellness Center focuses on an individualized approach to medicine. His goal is to help people uncover the answers as to why their body is in distress and find the solutions necessary to to restore optimal health. And that's just that's exactly what we want, right? I mean, seriously. He uh, completed four years of postgraduate naturopathic uh, medical education at the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon, after receiving a bachelor's degree in environmental biology from the University of Colorado. How about that? He is a former president of the Maryland Naturopathic Doctors Association and is an active member of the American Association of Naturopathic Physicians, which is what you always want. He wants them involved in staying up to date, and we are going to have him on the show in just a minute. I'm so excited. 
I am just feeling very relaxed this morning. And look at that. He is with us. Very cool. So let's get this thyroid nation thriving. Let's do it. Good morning, Dr. Passero. Can you hear us okay? I can. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, thanks so much for being with us. Sure. We're so excited. <laughs> me too. Uh, I'm feeling exceptionally calm this morning. I'm 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 in like this yoga pose sitting on the floor with my laptop in front of me and I'm like I'm feeling just very relaxed. So that's gonna be awesome Having for this. One of those moments the, of Zen. I am that That's nice. a perfect way to put it. I totally am. I'm like ready to just, this is such a crazy important topic. And I think, you know, most people don't don't really understand how much, you know, depression and anxiety is, you know, so many people think they're like wired like that rather than that there's mm-hmm. actually possibly an answer behind it. So we mm-hmm. are super excited, super excited yeah. to talk with you about Thanks. this. Thanks. No, I'm excited to share the information. People definitely seem to be interested in, in hearing more about it. As you know, depression and anxiety are incredibly common and, you know, people suffer from them um, immensely on minor levels and major levels. So, um, you know, we should be able to cover some topics today that should give people some food for thought and understanding a little bit more about what steps to take to get in control of it rather than letting it control them. So I'm, I'm happy to start wherever you guys want. Well, let's start with you a little bit, just to let everybody know a little bit of who you are and where you came from. Can you tell us a little bit about your story and uh, how you chose the naturopathic path? Sure, yeah. Um, yeah, so I was uh, <clears throat> born and raised in Maryland and came from a family of um, around medicine. My father was a periodontist, which is a dentist that specializes in, in gum surgery, and he was a real pioneer in his field. And, you know, we just uh, somehow or another biology and medicine and science always really just resonated with me and it was obviously, you know, the sort of paternal role model in my house. So I'm sure that had some influence and went to college and uh, had an amazing education at the University of Colorado in environmental biology, which was all just about system dynamics and ecosystems and plant-animal interactions. And I didn't know it then, but really it was prepping me for understanding the concepts of naturopathic medicine and, and really helping people how to heal. Because when we studied ecosystem dynamics, we would learn that, you know, if an ecosystem was really off or if something was really happening, there was usually one cause or one issue that was sort of an underlying problem that was throwing the dynamics of the entire system off. And every organism that operated in that ecosystem, whether they were the lowest sort of um, prey or the highest predator, was affected. And it's the same concepts in the body. We're walking, living ecosystem. And it also helped me start to understand the amazing co-evolution that we've had with the plant world around us and how these plants and many herbs are around to kind of help us in our healing journey and healing process. And um, it it was really great education. I graduated, was interested in going into medicine. Uh, Obviously, my my dad was a dentist at that time. By the time I graduated college, my sister was a dentist. So I was looking at the dental field. I was really interested in the field of neurology. So I had to do an internship. My last semester of college, went through the phone book to find a neurologist, and naturopath came before neurology, and it just uh, fascinated me. I said, what is a naturopath? And I called up a doc. I spent a couple weeks shadowing her, and I was pretty much hooked. So that led to my schooling out at um, the National College of Naturopathic Medicine in Portland, Oregon, and that was uh, four four years of that postgraduate training, 
um, after my undergrad, getting a medical degree in naturopathic medicine. And then I graduated, moved back to Maryland and started my practice. And it's been about 13 years and just been, you know, building experiences and enjoying, you know, the profession and all the work that I do with people. And it's been very fulfilling. And I want to just throw out really quick before we jump into all this good stuff that I really appreciate um, you, Dr. Pacero, because when I was just starting out, Thyroid Nation was itty-bitty-bitty, and I didn't really know where I was headed, and no one knew the name Thyroid Nation, and I emailed him, and he got right back to me. I asked him if you know, we could uh, share one of his articles, and, and of course, he was gracious, and and um, and then a couple years went by, and and I actually had the pleasure of meeting uh, you, and it was just such a, a full circle moment for me, and mm. I just wanted to share that because it was really great. Well, thanks, Anna. It's always been been nice having people support you. You know, I mean, you can be a great doctor with great thoughts in your head, but if you don't have other people and networks to help you get that word out, you know, what good are you doing if you're not sitting down in, in front of people helping them? So, you know, I'm I'm always very grateful and, um, you know, very humbled by the people that really have supported me in the growth of my practice and the work that I do because it allows me to do what fulfills me, which is help people. So it's great. Well, and thank you for your support with our nation. I appreciate sure. it. Okay, guys, let's do this. Let's let's jump right in. Tiff, I know you've got. I know you're chomping at the bit. Why don't you start? <laughs> no, let's just talk a little bit about because um, I know there's several different um, perspectives here with thyroid hormone, um, you know, and the and its role in mood disorders. So let's start with thyroid hormone deficiency, just on the top, and how that affects mood imbalances and mood disorders. Sure. Well, I mean. Actually, you know, Tiffany, the conversation can go either way, right? Because it could be a thyroid hormone deficiency or it could be a thyroid hormone excess for sure. I mean, I think both of them are equally important exactly. when it comes Thank to you so much. Yeah, when it comes to addressing the issue because we're not just talking about hypo and hyperthyroidism and I know that you know most people listening are probably more interested in the hypo side of things because it's a much more common condition than hyper, but understand that um many people can have negative impacts from too much thyroid hormone, even if they're hypo, because the thyroid hormone replacement therapy is not properly managed. And so, you know, it's a really important concept to understand. But yes, if you just want to talk straight hypo, I mean, this is a, a great topic to discuss. And I think um, it's it's always exciting when, when you know, I mean, I know from, from a doctor, my, my best gratification is helping people have major transformations in health. So while I don't mean to belittle people's suffering, sometimes when people come in and I find something wrong that I know I can help them with, I'm all excited. <laughs> you know, they're like, not sure, oh my gosh, I have this problem, you know, and I'm just going, this is so exciting because I know that you're going to feel so much better and we're going to be able to help you and that gives me so much fulfillment. So with hypothyroidism, several issues can arise. We know that thyroid hormone primarily sets metabolism in the body. And metabolism isn't just about your basal metabolic rate and how much fat tissue you have versus muscle tissue and energy you have. You have to understand that metabolism is something that occurs in every single cell. So every cell needs the proper stimulus in order to, to do its job. So if it's a muscle cell, it needs to have energy to contract. If it's a liver cell, it needs to have the energy to do detoxification. If it's a bone cell, it needs to have the energy to be able to build or break down bone to create healthy bone. And it's the same thing if it's a brain cell. If it's a neuron and that neuron is not being properly 
supplied with the cues it needs to accurately set its metabolic energy, it's going to be running sluggish. And as a result of running sluggish, you're going to have decreased activity of uh, decreased production of the important brain neurotransmitters that support mood, uh, decreased activity in the synapse, decreased activity of basically everything. So you can get this low thyroid function and you can see very clearly ties to certainly depression and low mood. And a lot of psychiatrists, especially functional medicine psychiatrists, it's almost like common practice now in many circles of psychiatry that if you have a depressed patient, regardless of their thyroid test, give them T3. It, it's like mm. this, it's like I've heard psychiatrists, you know, in trainings, I've done a lot of training with psychiatrists and mood and mental health issues. And, you know, you, you'll hear them talk about it. And I mean, it's like, I'm coming at from, from a different perspective because I don't like to just give thyroid hormone unless I really see there's a need for it. But it's almost like in that model of just use a drug to kind of get everything fixed. They're even turning to T3 therapy to say, hey, you know what, even if it's not low, just try it because a lot of depressed patients react or respond in a positive way, even if they're not responding mm -hmm. to antidepressants, because you give that T3, we know T3 is far more metabolically active of the two thyroid hormones, and you start stimulating metabolic activity everywhere in the body, and lo and behold, you start stimulating some metabolic activity in the brain and neurotransmitters, and you get basically in increased mood. So um, the other side of it, though, that's really, really important to consider that many people get brushed under the rug about is that I have seen low thyroid hormone lead to major anxiety, right? And so if you go, go like look up some of the symptoms of hypo, hyper, I think some people get confused in the paradigm because they say, no, if I'm, I, I should only be anxious if I'm hyperthyroid, you know, the symptoms of Graves' disease or an overactive thyroid. But the reality is, is that so many hypothyroid patients, if they've never been appropriately diagnosed or managed, their anxiety is terrible. And I can't necessarily tell you exactly the physiological mechanism. I mean, it may just be the same as depression. It just manifests with a different imbalance in, in, neuro, in brain neurotransmitters. But I know that also intuitively, if somebody's really hypothyroid and they're exhausted and worn out and tired because of all the other symptoms of hypothyroidism, any stress becomes more difficult. And so right. this normal stressors of life become overwhelming and anxiety sets in. And, you know, you can ask any person, just ask people to run the scenario through their head. Imagine depriving yourself of sleep for four or five nights in a row, literally maybe an hour of sleep for five nights in a row. How do you think you're going to respond to stressors in your life after being sleep deprived for five days? Well, that's right. often effectively how a hypothyroid patient or a low thyroid hormone patient feels. They feel just exhausted, and there's no bandwidth for dealing with stress. So things become incredibly overwhelming on top of the other issues related to, you know, improper function of neurons and neurotransmitter production and all the other things that we discussed. So I could keep going, but I'll, I'll pause so you can ask a question. Well, and Hashimoto's can kind of uh, make that a little bit more complex, too, because it can sort of flip hypo, hyper. There's, so there's kind of a lot of cross-symptoms just with the Hashimoto's perspective as well, correct? Oh my gosh, it's a, it is. It can be so confusing. I saw a patient last week and she came in and her history, she said, yeah, you know, I've, I was diagnosed as hyper. Um, 
after my first child, and then and then I went hypo again, and um, they told me I had Graves, and they wanted me to take the drugs for it. Like she went through this whole history with the assumption right. that she had Graves disease, and really what what actually she had that no endocrinologist or anybody had told her. When I looked at all of her labs and did her whole medical history, she had Hashimoto's. And it was labeled as Graves because she was temporarily hyper after pregnancy, which is not uncommon. They told her she was Graves, and now she's been walking around hypo for years, and the doctors are just happy because she doesn't have, she's not hyper, so they figured her Graves is cured. Where really she had Hashimoto's the entire Hashimoto's. time, and certainly she flipped <laughs> through periods of high anxiety and depression as her you know, thyroid hormone levels <laughs> fluctuated as a result of that autoimmune process. Wow, that is incredible. I mean, it is seriously, crazy. that is yeah. crazy. Yeah, I mean, I, I've, you know, helped people navigate a lot of things, but that one was like, wow, everybody missed the boat on this one. Like, this is, you have not been living with Graves for eight years. You have Hashimoto's, and, you know, we're going to, you know, of course, now for the last however many years, since she hasn't been pregnant in a while and everything, she's just been living in a chronic hypo state. And just, you know, with no support, no no looking at her case, no looking at her numbers, no no trials of thyroid hormone replacement, nothing. And, of course, you know, she just feels horrible. And that's the kind of thing, you know, I'm telling her that flipping her whole world upside down as far as her diagnosis. And she's kind of welling up with tears, somewhat excited, but somewhat just sad that, it, that you know, her health got brushed under the rug like that for so many times and everybody missed it. Meanwhile, I'm chomp. I, compassionate for her but I'm so excited because I know in a month she's going to walk into my office and she is going to just be feeling fantastic and then I get to feel all good about myself about you know being a doctor and all that stuff so it's a simple little (laughs) it's a simple little joy right right? you know yeah it's it's why I got into the work to help people okay so now hypo can be hypo and the the autoimmune of course is is one component and and we talk about that all the time but let's let's go in a little bit deeper, and I'm going to let let you kind of decide where you want to go first. But um, let's talk about conversion issues, things that that maybe aren't necessarily so easy. Well, they're easy for you, but for for most, you know, all the the listeners that are going to you know regular doctors that are testing TSH mm-hmm. and T4 and stopping there and saying you're you're fine, everything looks good with your mm-hmm. thyroid. Let's talk about conversion issues and how that plays a role. In the mood, sure. not, not not so easy for a lot of the listeners to get diagnosed, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I mean, it comes down to that sort of same simple concept that we touched upon a little bit at the beginning of the show, where you have these two forms of thyroid hormone, your T4 and your T3. And T3 is just so much more bioactive than T4 and is really what is needed in order to stimulate the cellular metabolism. And so, you know, if people aren't having effective um, conversion of T4 to T3, they can be effectively or at a cellular level still hypothyroid, even though their labs are reflecting normal normal numbers. So they may have all the symptoms and sometimes it manifests with depression and anxiety. I would ask a lot of patients, if you're on a thyroid medication, you know, go through a symptom checklist or go through your own checklist and say, okay, I had fatigue, low mood, weight gain, whatever the list is. Now I'm on thyroid medicine. My doctor's telling me I'm fine. Go through and see if you still have some of those symptoms on the checklist. If you do, then your thyroid isn't being properly managed. And when I say properly managed, I don't mean like 
the endocrinologist is doing something wrong or the primary care doctor is doing something wrong. They're doing it within the standards of care that that they've established, but it's not working at a cellular level. And there needs to be some other approach or intervention to either, let's say, support the enzymes that help convert T4 to T3 or offer additional hormone replacement strategies that create a better balance of T4 and T3 in the blood. Wow. That was so very well said. We have said this on the show so many times, but I think I think you just nailed how we're going to... It was so fluid, wasn't it? Yeah. Wow, and fantastic. The, and the, you know, the other thing that comes up with conversion that I think is really important to, to point out is what I said before. I see a lot of patients that come in hypothyroid diagnosis, and they're put on the standard hypothyroid medication, which is going to be Synthroid or Levothyroxine or Levoxyl, whatever, you know, branded or generic it's going to be. It's basically a synthetic T4 hormone replacement. And their numbers have normalized, but they're not feeling well. It's almost inducing anxiety. They're maybe having some sleep issues. They're feeling really anxious, but their lab numbers are normal. You know, and I've seen patients that have come in with long-standing symptoms of anxiety. Or I had a patient yesterday; she has major heart palpitations, and she came in for me to work her up on her cardiac issues because she was concerned about that. Well, I went back in her health history, and I found out she was hypothyroid on Synthroid. And I asked her, "Let me ask you this." You know. She said, when did your heart palpitations start? They started about a year ago. Okay, we're going through. I said, did your doctor happen to make any changes in your thyroid prescription around the time your heart palpitation started? And she said, yes. He doubled the dose because I said I was tired. Oh, and I believe, and so and her primary, her labs look fine. Her TSH is at like 1.3 or 1.4. T4 levels are normal. There's no abnormalities in the lab. So the doctor's looking at it saying, well, now we think it may be a cardiac issue. The cardiologist does a workup, does EKG, echo, all of the things, and heart function is fine. But she's having these palpitations that are driving her crazy. And as we talk about mood disorders, every time she gets one, she has a history of panic attacks. But now every time she starts into a heart palpitation episode, it's triggering her panic anxiety because it's a very scary feeling to have your heart not beating right. So this isn't her case is not a case necessarily of neurotransmitter imbalance. She has anxiety, and that's what happened. She went to the emergency room numerous times, and they would always check her out every way, check her thyroid, check her heart, and send her out saying you have panic attacks with basically a prescription for Xanax, which she refused to take. And her primary wants to try antidepressants, and everybody's just labeling it anxiety because she has a history of anxiety and panic attacks. But that's not what this is. She hadn't had a panic attack in like 15 years until her dose of, of Synthroid was doubled. And so her numbers are normal. Everything looks fine on the surface, but if you don't understand the implication that thyroid hormones can have on your system as a whole, including the brain and the body and the cardiovascular system, people can get really lost in the shuffle and spend a lot of time spinning their wheels with therapies or modalities or workups that are really just not moving in the right direction. So you really need to be working with somebody that understands the ins and outs of of thyroid hormone and what can happen if it's not properly adjusted too far low or too far high. And that's, I see that all the time. And some people just don't respond well to Synthroid. They just, it causes anxiety. It causes heart palpitations. It causes an air and a degree of edginess and uneasiness. 
and it doesn't really relieve a lot of the other symptoms. And because nobody discusses that there are other options potentially for that person, they just assume that that's what they have to live with or that it is a mental, emotional issue and not necessarily a thyroid issue. Well, and I okay, think, that's you know, a flower-filled moment for me, Tiffany. Total, I just have to stop. Totally. I mean, I'm just, I'm just like, can you imagine how many people out there, I mean, hopefully listening, that they're going, oh, my gosh, that's it. I mean, that's, that's just amazing. Uh, so glad you explained it so, so that all the listeners could easily understand. That was fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, people get to read a lot about there's a lot of great websites and a lot of great information like, you know, Thyroid Nation and all the different books and everything that's out there about the basic concepts around being a good advocate for yourself with thyroid and, and understanding thyroid function. But it's only from this standpoint of having seen thousands and thousands of hypothyroid patients and been through this process with people where I can kind of come up with sometimes these little pearls of information that aren't going to apply to everyone, but even if it just helps one person that's listening or one person out there, it's worth sharing, you know? Oh, totally. Don't you think, too, Dr. Passero, that, that a lot of, you know, uh, hypothyroid patients in particular, you know, they don't feel well, they don't feel well, the fatigue, the brain fog, you know, I've got no energy and all these different things, and then all of a sudden they're hyperthyroid and they don't really realize it. They've you know, all of a sudden they have more energy and everything feels better, but they're a little bit more irritable, and now they're you yes. know, getting essential tremors and palpitations. Yep. And there's so many people that have that just cemented in their brain that I'm hypothyroid, that it's not possible for me to be hyperthyroid, but they are medicated. You think so? That's Do you right. see that? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's basically, yeah, exactly what I, what I talked about. And that's what happens a lot of times when you use, when the primary therapy that is utilized for thyroid hormone replacement can have very difficult time with proper conversion and cellular uptake and, and utilization. You know, you can end up with a lot of people in that scenario. Now, with that said, I, I don't agree that, you know, it would be a totally better world if, you know, everybody started with natural desiccated thyroid, each person has got to find the fit that works for their body, you know. And so it's really about just having an astute physician who's willing to just listen and really willing to study and understand how different forms of thyroid hormone replacement can affect somebody's physiology so that if somebody's voicing a symptom or an issue, the doctor just doesn't brush it under the rug and actually pays attention and says, hey, you've put your trust in me to manage this process for you. Let me be a critical thinker and really try and understand what's going on so I can do that job appropriately and not just, you know, well, I have five minutes before I've got to get into the next room. So your labs look fine. You know, it's not that issue. Go take some meditation and see your primary for an antidepressant. <laughs> I mean, I mean you laugh, funny, but, but it's I mean, not it's, right. It's, not funny, but yeah, it, it, it happens. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right? It's the story. It happens every day. It, you know, I hear those stories so every sad. single day. Yeah, it's, it's horrible. It is, and I can't it's help horrible. it. I, I when when something makes me nervous, I'm a, I'm a giggler. So, uh, <laughs> you know, that's just the way I I handle mm-hmm. things. I mean, he said it, and it was just so like that's terrible. And then you know, I can't help it. I just giggle. So I know. We have I fun know. on the show. I can't help it. That's just the way we are. So okay. Well, I wanna, let's I face wanna... it. Right. 
absurd absurd absurdity sometimes can be funny because you're like seriously that that's almost it sounds impossible that that could be it the does. Yes, I mean sometimes all you can happen. do is is laugh because it does it sounds absurd but it unfortunately it's, it's the reality and you know it's it is sad. Definitely. Okay, hey, I wanted to go ahead. Dan, I wanted I was to say. I was just going to say I wanted to I wanted to get in a little bit deeper because um, when I uh, was visiting and in, in, in the session with um, Dr. Passero, he hit on so many things that were so key, and I want to jump you know straight to that. Tiffany, you sent me a fantastic article about the brain and neurotransmitters and how all of it works. And Dr. Passero, you you laid it out so perfectly for um, listeners in layman's terms, and I just kind of want you to talk about how it's all connected. And Tiff, if you have a specific question, go ahead and jump in. No, no, was just going to, Dr. Passero, you kind of led us perfectly into that improper cellular utilization of thyroid hormone. And um, Mm -hmm. I think that's another thing that, you know, doesn't get discussed very frequently. Everyone pretty much focuses on just being hypo, just being hyper rather than, nutrient deficiencies and things that can actually affect the way the body uses all this thyroid hormone that may be Mm -hmm. present. Uh, Thyroid looks normal, but yet they have all these thyroid symptoms. So kind of one step further into, you know, how the body actually uses it. Can it it use it wrong? Can it not be using it efficiently? And how does that affect the mood? Yeah, it's it's so weird. I mean, you know, I think it all goes back to just the basic concepts that I've laid out around how thyroid hormone can affect mood are the same. So then the issue comes down to, all right, we, we've got this issue. We've got this, this incredibly important endocrine gland in our body. And for some reason, for many people, it's, it's in distress and it's failing, right? And so we've got to rely on this really archaic process that the function of the thyroid gland in our own bodies, how it works is so dynamic every single second the body is making micro adjustments to conversion levels production levels um you know iodine uptake every single thing is being regulated every nanosecond in our thyroid and it sort of stops working and so what we're left with is this really archaic method of trying to reproduce what the body is doing by just swallowing a pill that has some thyroid hormone I mean, the, the, the disconnect and the difference between an incredibly complex biological process that is so far beyond the, the, even the most advanced aspects of our science, right, to just like, all right, well, now we just have to swallow a pill that has some hormone in it. Of course, there's going to be some problems and there's going to be some ways that we need, we need to look at things and we can run into things like conversion issues and utilization and uptake issues. There can be problems with digestive function and poor uptake. There can be problems, it, 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 although it still doesn't make entirely, entirely make sense to me because basically Synthroid and a lot of the, the primary therapies that doctors use is a, is a pretty much bioidentical T4 compound. But for some reason, it doesn't seem to be in many people properly recognized and utilized or converted in the body in an appropriate way. And it just doesn't make entirely a whole lot of sense to me. 
um, but I can understand that there's an intuition and a knowledge in the body that, that it's trying to tell us something, and that's what you just have to listen for. So, um, you know, utilization, the cells, there's a very dynamic interaction that occurs between a hormone and a cellular receptor. And if that dynamic is not properly working, then you can have all of the hormone levels you want circulating in the blood. The cells may not be uptaking it, right? I tell patients all the time, I may be sitting in my office in D.C. or Annapolis, and it's in the middle of winter, and it's freezing cold outside. It's, you know, five degrees out. And we're sitting in my office, and the patient calls their friend, and, and the, their friend says, oh, where are you? Oh, I'm in, I'm in Annapolis with my doctor. And they say, oh, you must be freezing. I heard it's only five degrees in Maryland. You must be so cold right now. And they say, no, I'm, I'm sitting in the office. It's 70 degrees in here. The heat is on. Well, like what's happening outside of my office is like the bloodstream. What's happening inside my office is like the cell. And there can be a huge difference between what's happening in the bloodstream and what's happening in the cell, just like it can be five degrees outside, but 70 degrees in my house. And if that thyroid hormone is not appropriately being recognized, um, bound, uh, utilized by the body, and thyroid hormone is unique because it actually has to bind to the DNA, not the external cellular receptor. If it's not working properly, then people can be functionally hypothyroid, meaning their cells are starving for the input they need to support metabolism, yet they may have normal blood tests. So, you know, that's, I guess, the best I can get into in, in utilization. Now, nutrient deficiencies, do those affect cellular utilization a little bit like, you know, say, for example, iron like ferritin or... Yeah, uh, sure. That's a so great, when there's nutrient deficiencies, question. that can be a, a huge uh, cofactor, right? Like you know, nutri- yeah. you know, I always tell people thyroid hormone doesn't doesn't fix a nutrient deficiency. So you're almost like, you know, putting a bandaid on a gaping wound. It's it's you're yeah. you're, yep. you're trumping the problem. You know what I mean? Yeah, they all have to be looked at, and certainly, you know, ferritin is a huge one, and that's how your body basically stores iron, and iron stores and ferritin. Besides just being iron stores, ferritin does play a role in your in the ability of thyroid hormone to, to really bind and be recognized by receptor sites. So does stress hormones like cortisol, you know, so there's many cofactors that are necessary in order for thyroid hormone to be properly utilized within the body. In addition, some people with thyroid disorders we've seen from large scale studies have a higher risk factor for certain nutrient deficiencies. And it's very common to see things like low B12 in a hypothyroid population. Well, B12 is an incredibly important nutrient for the brain and nervous system. So if you're dealing with a hypothyroid patient, you may regulate their thyroid and they they feel a little better, their mood doesn't come up, maybe they're also still deficient in B12. I've had patients that have have had a complete resolution in longstanding depression issues because we identified a significant B12 deficiency and B12 injections made a dramatic dramatic difference, like so much so that the therapist they've been seeing for three years, Cole calls me out of nowhere to just say, what did you do for that patient? She's been depressed for three years and she walked in my office this week. I have never seen her like this. So, oh, well, we found a B12 deficiency (laughs) and she got on B12 injections. I mean, it can be staggeringly dramatic if somebody's walking around with one of these deficiencies and doesn't realize it. And it's important, again, to, you know, be looking at all of these different factors when trying to understand because, you know, nothing in our body happens in a vacuum. And that's unfortunately, 
you know, the paradigm of, of medicine that we're in is that everything occurs in a vacuum, and it doesn't. Everything interacts with each other, including thyroid hormone and nutrients and sex hormones and everything, and that needs to be considered when, when looking at every case. And just to use me as an example, because Tiffany and I often do this on the show, um, so the listeners will know, I am actually high, over the high mark in B12, and so is my son. And without supplementation, that's that's without key supplementation. Without supplementation, right? yes, that's yes. right. And I'm pretty sure that I'm low in B12, and that's probably very confusing. It's confusing for me. It's got to be confusing mm-hmm. for most people. Um, I'm I'm almost certain I've got some kind of um, you know THFR mutation, and I'm not methylating, and I'm not getting that nutrient that I need from you know uh, whatever I'm eating. But I'm high in it, so I've got an excess of it. But I'm low in it, so it's very confusing. Yeah, I mean there can be confusing processes like that, and we're learning a lot more about the genetics of the body and how it interacts with nutrients and epigenetics. And, you know, you talk about methylation, which has been a very popular topic in the world of thyroid health and overall health in the integrative medicine field in the last three to five years. And, um, you know, certainly having an elevated B12 level in the absence of B12 supplementation indicates that there's probably some methylation issues, most likely in the methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase gene, the MTHFR gene, and so you're basically having levels of B12 building up in the blood. It's not getting appropriately uh, methylated and converted through those methylation cycles and utilized cellularly. So cellularly, you're low in it, but your blood levels are high, just like you know the situation that can occur with underutilization of thyroid hormone. Blood levels may be normal or high, but the cellular uptake and activity and what's happening actually inside the cell may be, may be a deficiency. So it is confusing, but that does happen in the body. I love how you explain that. Thank you. Sure. Sure. You know, I have to jump in there. Your your example of your office and the outside is to me such a perfect way to describe ferritin. Because unfortunately, you know, mainstream medicine, you know, just sticks with the hemoglobin and hematocrit. You know, everything looks peachy keen in the blood. But the ferritin can be almost completely depleted, which means the body views it as an iron deficiency and will therefore mm-hmm. slow things down and everything. But it just, the way you explained that, honestly, I was like, that is the perfect ferritin description of mm-hmm. iron. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. And I'll have to say, I with can't full get my head out of that. It's just. I know. I I did steal that from another doctor, so, you know, I won't take full credit for it, but I thought I love using examples and analogies, and I thought that was a good one as well, so I've I've adopted it. Well, let's face it, for certain types of learners, that is how they remember things, is using it as an example in another way. So for me, that was like the ultimate, because I think iron gets people in a lot of trouble, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, unfortunately, especially when they don't have a very caring, listening, well-versed, well-testing physician, which Mm -hmm. unfortunately, Dr. Passero, there are many, many thyroid patients that are stuck in that paradigm, you know, whether it's insurance or... I would say most, yeah. Absolutely. So it's, you know, uh, for them to... And, and, you know, mainstream medicine as a general rule refuses to test ferritin. So Mm -hmm. it's, uh, you know, it's a very sad... A uh, very sad situation. Of course, that happens a lot with people when they go on natural desiccated thyroid. In particular, they can feel extremely poor 
if they're in a, a low iron type state. And, and mm-hmm. oh, my goodness, I mean, there's just, and B12 is an amazing thing, you know. I uh, Now, does out of curiosity, so mainstream medicine has a fairly wide range of B12 as far as values are concerned, blood, you know, serum values. Naturopathic medicine has a little bit more, uh, or maybe their interpretation of the testing is much better. But what do you like to see as far as, you know, something so simple like B12 uh, for yeah. most people? What, what yeah, level I mean, I, do you like to see as a general rule? I mean, it, I know that there's other cofactors, but, you know, it's sure. a fairly simple answer. Yeah, I'm, usually over 600 is what I like to see. Um, you know, if it's 500, I'm not terribly concerned. If it's 400, I'm starting to kind of think is not so great. If it's down at like 300 or below, the, the low end of the cutoff range is like, I think, depending on the lab, it's right around 200. Sometimes it's 210, sometimes it's 230. So, I mean, if you're seeing levels down around 300, 400, it, even though you're not frankly deficient, there's definitely usually some functional deficiencies happening when B12 is that low. And if somebody's reporting you know, symptoms that might you may find associated with low B12, and that could be fatigue, it could be nerve issues, it could be memory focus problems. Um, you know, I've had one patient, she had uh, this weird condition. A lot of people have heard of it, but it's not super common. It's like called burning mouth or burning tongue syndrome. And, um, you know, it was all due to a B12 deficiency that had not been properly identified or diagnosed. She ended up having... Um, uh, pernicious anemia, which is antibodies that block the absorption of B12, which is an autoimmune reaction. And she had had it for God knows however many years. And she had tennis elbow and carpal tunnel and burning mouth. And she had been to every best neurologist all around town and tried different Lyrica and all these drugs. And nobody checked her B12. And that was like 10, 10 years. <laughs> so oh I checked goodness. her B12 and we found out, you know, that uh, some of her issues were also related to a really, really sort of borderline celiac related issue with gluten that was probably triggering a lot of the autoimmune stuff. So, um, you know, so it, it is, it's a really important nutrient. It can manifest with a lot of different symptoms, but that's a more complicated answer to, you know, 600 know. or above is ideal. 600 or above is ideal. And very important as well to test folate at the same time as B12, correct? Yeah, although I have to say I've never – I mean, you, you do need to do that because you don't want to miss a, a folate deficiency. You know, I mean, you've got to understand what, what both of them are, are doing because they can both present in similar ways. Um, and, you know, um, I've never seen a deficient folate level, though, I have to say. <laughs> I've, never, I've seen a lot of low B12s. I've never seen a low folate. Now, can a very high folate level mask sort of B12 deficiencies? Is that is that a fairly fair statement? Well, or? yeah, I mean that's the that's the the issue. That's why like certain you know doses of folic acid above a certain amount are sort of regulated more as like a prescription because if somebody's got a severe B12 deficiency and you give high high doses of folate, you can sort of mask that B12 deficiency, not realize that it's there, and people can have other complications of their health and the symptoms, the the signals that the body is telling us to to pay attention to it have sort of, you know, disappeared because of the high doses of folate. So, um, you know, you don't run into that as much giving high B12. You can't really mask a true folate deficiency. So it's a little bit different. But um, for me personally, sometimes you see really, really high levels of folate that could, again, tie into the, the methylation, MTHFR gene evaluations. But generally speaking, most people's folate is pretty sufficient or, you know, more so you're looking for Within elevated range. levels. Yeah, for methylation problems. Right, right. 
I'll tell you, but you fo- know, Foley I, doesn't have like a tight range. It's just basically over a certain amount is considered normal. So they don't have like as much of like a, a tight reference range as B12, you know? Right, right. You know, it's amazing to me when we talk about this and we compartmentalize all of these different things. It just, you know, I'm going back to my Zen moment. <laughs> but You're no longer feeling dynamic, very Zen, are you? <laughs> just the dynamic systems that we have, it just, they deserve such a phenomenal amount of respect. I mean, I'm well, just... Well, that's the funny uh, thing, Tiffany. I mean, you know, we we spend so much time and and medicine and science and research and it's great we've learned so much but we have this like this ego that humans have that's just like it's bigger than it's bigger than our brains right so like we have this idea that we're so smart and we're coming up with all these cutting edge interesting understanding you know cellular dynamics and all this stuff but I mean, really, we understand it very, very poorly because we have humans right. have never been able to recreate any kind of man-made human system that even comes close, not even right. a, a nano-inch <laughs> close to the complexity and wonder of what the human body or human cell does every single second, not even close. Whatever the most advanced human technological advance is, it right. is not even right. close to what our body does every single second. So, you Careful, know, it's sometimes it's important. <laughs> yeah, it's important to sometimes I tell all patients that you got to you got to take a step back and realize because I'll look at people and say, well, I'm not quite sure if this is going to work, or I don't know exactly what your dose is going to be, or I'm not sure what's going to come up. I have to try and figure this out with your help in your body because you're unique. And I tell people, you know, don't get discouraged by that, but understand that all doctors that are telling you that they have the answers to everything, they're they're lying. They don't really understand. You know, we have this idea that we do, and the more you become vulnerable and open up to that idea that you may not have all the answers, it allows you to start asking the right questions and to be a more compassionate, caring, kind, you know, health provider or partner in somebody seeking, seeking to get better. And I think a lot of doctors just in, in, an, in an idea of trying to just want to help people and, you know, establishing all the defense mechanisms we do in our lives using our ego, apply it the same way to medicine. And it, it's oftentimes what sells people short, and I believe it's what's, what's sold our medical system short over the last, you know, 100 years. Right, right. I, I totally agree. We've we've lost a, a tremendous amount of respect for the, the dynamic human body. You know, I was playing this eyewire game. I don't know if you're familiar with that. It's a neurological um, mm-hmm. game, and it's it's you know, the neurons and being able to connect different things. But, you know, I, the whole time I was playing and I was thinking, this is almost crazy that, you know, we can see this and it looks so amazing and yet it's really just a fraction of the mm-hmm. of the big picture of the human brain. Exactly. I, yep. I just, I've been in Zen for a little <laughs> maybe going on about 24 hours right now. No, um, but just, it is. It's an amazing system, and, and it does get so compartmentalized. And, you know, especially when people don't feel well, they're like, what about this? Yeah. What about this? And, and we don't realize all of these things work in one big synergy, and, which mm-hmm. is the, the, the fabulousness of naturopathic medicine because they, you do understand the dynamics of the, of the whole human system, and it's a, it's a beautiful thing. So not to comp- to compartmentalize a little bit more, but let's talk. A- would you mind talking a little bit about just the copper zinc relationship? Um, 
with mood as well and kind of you right. know, just yeah. giving people different avenues to, to kind of cover, so to speak. Right. So this shift gears a little bit away from, you know, some of the, the basic tie-ins to hypothyroidism or right. even thyroid disorders in general. This is really looking at a few basic concepts that are often tied to neurochemistry imbalances. And, you know, these these tie-ins are usually things that are people are genetically predisposed to. So um, if you have a, a issue with anxiety or depression or some sort of ADHD or mood issue and you start looking around your family members and you start identifying anxiety and depression in parents or siblings and aunts and uncles and other psychiatric or mood disorders, you know, there's a genetic component. And I would say most people that have a, a lifelong history of some depression and anxiety or other issues can very easily identify other people in their family that have it as well. So there tends to be a very strong genetic component to And that's some a of great these- point. Yeah, That's a great point, these, yeah. Yep. It's very few times when I'm talking with the patient and I'll say, well, is there any family history? Usually they just roll my eyes and laugh. <laughs> Yeah, of course, Doc. I mean, geez, my sister is this, and my mom was depressed, and my dad was an alcoholic, and my grandfather, oh, my God. You know, and it's just kind of like they laugh about it because it's been so pervasive in the family history. Well, it's not just coincidence. I mean, there's genetic factors that are passed down, and while we don't understand any of them, there is a a Ph.D. researcher, Dr. William Walsh, who has spent about the last 30 years researching um, sort of the most addressable, easily measured genetic variations that predispose somebody to neurochemical chemistry imbalances that can result in conditions like anxiety, depression, ADHD, bipolar, schizophrenia, and even things like autism. And, um, you know, there are, there are several key parts of it. One is the methylation piece, which actually is not related to the MTHFR gene variant. It actually downplays the importance of the MTHFR gene variant, although that is something important to consider. Um, but there, there's about, you know, probably 20 to 30 methylation enzymes out there. MTHFR is just one. So it's right. not the whole picture, but it can be an important component. Um, we're looking at methylation as a whole, so we're looking at not just MTHFR activity, but we're looking at end results of all of the pathways of methylation, which can be assessed in somebody and are oftentimes genetically passed down, um, very commonly genetically passed down. And then, uh, as you talked about, we've got copper and zinc issues, and and this can go two ways. You can have um, zinc deficiencies, and zinc deficiencies can become problematic because zinc deficiency, zinc is a very important cofactor in the production of neurotransmitters in the brain. So our neurons basically get amino acids from our diet and from our gut bacteria, amino acids like tryptophan and tyrosine. And then our, our um, body takes through enzymes, those amino acids, let's say like tryptophan, and converts it into 5-hydroxytryptophan. And then there's another enzyme that converts that into serotonin, which we know is an important brain neurochemistry, is a neurochemical, just like tyrosine goes into dopamine, which is very important and converts into norepinephrine and epinephrine. These are the key neurotransmitters in our brain that are required for proper functioning of our neurons. And zinc deficiency can be problematic because if you don't have enough zinc present, you can't run those enzymes that operate those conversion. And some people are prone to zinc deficiencies based on genetic factors. And copper is another one. Copper excesses are probably the biggest problem. Low copper is not really an issue when it comes to neurotransmission problems and mental health issues. It's copper excess. 
And copper excess is a problem for, for really two main reasons. Um, would you like me to explain? No, oh, please. Yeah, please. Okay. Okay. Um, for two main reasons. One is um, that copper is also one of these really important minerals in the conversion of of a neurotransmitter step. And the, the, the step that copper is vital in is the conversion of dopamine to norepinephrine. Okay, so now let's take a step back and, and talk about these neurotransmitters because you have to understand a tiny bit about neurotransmitters to understand why a copper excess is important. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is associated with our pleasure reward center. So dopamine is, is everything that occurs like, you know, let's say drug addiction or pleasure-seeking behavior. Dopamine levels are sort of what rises in addition to other brain neurotransmitters. Um, but like dopamine is one of the ones that rises when you, when you are holding hands, you know, when you're newly in love and you think the world is the best place. Some of that is, is dopamine that's making you feel that good or the dopamine rush that occurs, let's say, for a, a drug addict or for um, even just something like a food addiction, just that milkshake that you want so bad, finally getting it. That's dopamine. Dopamine is a very pleasurable, satisfying, almost, it's a stimulatory neurotransmitter, but it's almost calming because it's giving us a feeling of satisfaction and completeness, basically. Right. Norepinephrine is a, is a stress neurotransmitter. It's part of the fight or flight system. Right, So norepinephrine is the go, 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 go. That's the one that's supposed to elevate when you're faced with, like, you know, in a worst example, a life or death situation, um, fight or flight. But also we have stressors every day. We've got to think quickly. I'm on a radio show. I'm, you know, talking to you guys and doing this. And, like, my brain is active. I'm, I'm amped up. I'm trying to really be sharp. And that's norepinephrine levels are rising in my body to account for this stressor. It's an exciting one, but a stressor that I'm, that I'm experiencing. Too much of it can be problematic. Copper drives the conversion of dopamine to norepinephrine. So if somebody has elevated copper levels, they end up having low levels of dopamine because all of that dopamine gets converted into the stress neurotransmitter norepinephrine. And so they manifest with a brain neurochemistry that looks like they're overstimulated, constantly in fight or flight, anxious, panic attacks, huge correlation with ADHD, focus, hyperactivity. The dopamine's low because all the dopamine is getting pushed down this pathway because of the excess copper and the norepinephrine levels are high. And it pushes a very, very high state of anxiety and brain overstimulation. The second problem with elevated copper is that do either of you know what the number one usage is for the raw material copper in the world? No. Hmm. Would it be plumbing? <laughs> no, that used to be. No, we don't use copper it? pipes anymore. It's in circuit boards. Uh, in this country. Right. All right, go ahead. In the world. No, what is it? In the world. It's circuit boards. And because oh, copper... Yeah. And, and copper wire before we had computers. Copper was used in wire. Copper is the best conductor of electricity of any known natural mineral or metal that we have. Copper conducts electricity really? the best. Yes. And now think about it. If somebody's having some brain abnormalities, how do doctors evaluate the brain. I mean, they can do an MRI or a CT to look at the structure, but if they want to understand the function, they stick electrodes on your heads and they do an EEG. 
And you can literally measure the electrical signals of the brain through your cranium. That's how electrical the brain is. And so excess levels of copper in the brain tissue basically drive overexcitation and overstimulation of all of those electrical patterns, again, contributing to hyperactivity, inattention, and overstimulation of the brain. Do you follow that? Yes. A qu- quick 100%. question, and it, and it may sound kind of um, may sound kind of stupid, but uh, blood levels of copper, is that directly reflective of necessarily brain levels of copper? Yeah, I mean, there's actually there's a pretty good correlation between between copper blood levels, and it's a very simple, relatively inex, inexpensive. It's just the serum copper levels, and you can usually you can't go by the reference ranges on the lab, but if you know the correct functional reference ranges, you can use that as a pretty good guide to understand whether or not somebody's dealing with copper excess. And if they are, I mean, it, it, it takes a while to get the copper levels down, but almost invariably you're going to see reductions in a lot of those symptoms if copper levels do start to come down. Now, you know, where the biggest question people ask if, if I tell them your copper levels are elevated is they say, well, okay, well, what do I do? What am I eating? You know, what, what am I doing? Because copper does naturally occur in foods. But the reality is is that high copper levels are mostly genetic. It's mostly tied to the activity of a very important enzyme in our body called the metallothionine enzyme or the metallothionine protein. And this is a, a protein in the body that regulates metals. And it regulates mercury. It regulates all of our metals, including copper. And many people have um, common inborn genetic variations of their metallothionine protein that may make it very inefficient at removing copper from the system. So it's, it's oftentimes a genetic related predisposition. The only other thing that can cause elevated copper levels, and food can do it. I mean, if people are eating large amounts of really high copper-containing foods, it can be problematic. But hormones are another big problem, particularly estrogen, when it comes to elevated copper levels. And if, if you have a woman that tells you that she had really bad postpartum depression, about 80 out of 100 times, she's somebody that's going to have high copper. Um, there's a that, very strong that, that correlation. That is correlation as well with breast cancer, right? Um, I'm, well, I yeah, I mean, it's I funny. I was talking about cancer, this, yeah, yeah to, with an oncologist, and, and we started talking about, she was at, we were talking about mood and stuff, and I brought up copper, and, I mean, she's a brilliant radiation oncologist at one of the major medical centers here in Maryland, and she's been doing and following research in her field that oncologists are looking at related to elevated copper levels and higher rates of cancer. And this this, this relates exactly to my conversation of hormones, if you would like, I can explain to you why how copper is related to cancer and, and hormones. Um, yes, I would love it okay. if you have time. Yes. We, I mean, of course, yep. you bet. Okay. So, um, so when when a woman gets pregnant um, and the baby's developing, one of the, the most important things that has to happen in order for all the different areas of the baby to develop is they need to develop blood vessels in this process called angiogenesis. And angiogenesis is, is the name for the, um, for, for the formation of blood vessels in the body. And because the baby is literally developing hundreds of miles of blood vessels during the time of gestation, it, its activity of angiogenesis is very high. And copper is one of the primary minerals the body needs for the process of angiogenesis. And so 
in our body's incredible intuition and wisdom, when estrogen levels elevate with pregnancy, a woman will concentrate copper so that there's enough copper around to provide for the basically building of the capillary and blood vessel network highway system that the baby is doing. So copper always follows estrogen. And it's the same issue why they're looking at it in cancer. Cancer cells need, because of their high metabolism and the fact that they don't really die or shut off, they need massive amounts of nutrients. And so one thing that cancer cells do is they're very good at tricking the body into building new blood vessels. They, they, they stimulate the process of angiogenesis. And a lot of the new, newer drugs that we're looking at to fight cancer are geared at halting angiogenesis because if you can slow down angiogenesis, you can cut off the food supply to the tumor. So it's the same concept applied in different ways, but it explains why some women have like PMDD, um, really bad emotional issues with PMS, really bad postpartum depression, really bad mood changes that occur around menopause, horrible response to hormone therapy like birth control pills. If you start seeing some of these concepts pop up, there is likely a copper issue because as soon as you start fluctuating and changing these levels of estrogen in these different hormonal scenarios that a woman will experience in her lifetime, you're now changing the amount of copper that's in the system, and now you're basically driving that lower dopamine, higher stress anxiety state, and also sometimes just affecting general electroconductivity in the first place. Hmm. Dynamic. I'm going right back to the dynamic thing again. <laughs> the body's so smart. It <laughs> is. Craziness. So, oh, you know, I mean, that's a, it's a really important thing to, to look for, I would say, particularly if somebody's suffering from anxiety. Um, ADHD, copper levels are, are a major concern, and um, it's, it's a simple, easy test that people can look at. You know, from a cutoff standpoint, the, the labs, the reference ranges on the labs, copper goes up to, I believe it's about 130. Anything over 110 is considered a functional problem and needs to be addressed, and if it's over 110, it's likely contributing to some states of, of you know, mood imbalance in that person. So for those that, that would be like, well, I'll just run out and take more zinc, you're saying this is a genetic issue. It's a bigger problem. It's, it is. It's a genetic issue, but, I mean, you actually do it. One of the ways that you do address it is by giving zinc. Um, there are other ways. So it is true. I mean, you, you know, and, and you zinc will reduce and outcompete copper absorption and it will push copper out of the tissues and it will push copper out of the body. So, yeah, taking higher levels of zinc will bring copper levels down. There are other more effective strategies that can be that can augment zinc therapy or even take the place of zinc therapy at the right times in this process. But usually if I find high copper, that's oftentimes one of the first things I start with is zinc supplementation because it, it does work. That dynamic synergistic relationship they have. Yes, <laughs> right? exactly, exactly. But people do need he to know that. just wanted to say that word again. Yeah, people do need to know that if they are if they are high copper and they start taking high levels of zinc or they identify it in their child or whatever it is and they start giving high levels of zinc, you can significantly aggravate the anxiety, yeah. agitation, ADHD be, state. Because I was hoping that you zinc, would respond with that needs to be done by a professional. <laughs> yes, because you start oh, pushing no. all that copper Dude. out of the tissue into the system. Right. And I have seen that play out many, many, many times where people are feeling much worse when they start on a bunch of zinc supplementation to try and deal with their copper issues. That needs to be managed. Oh, no. Boo. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, my goodness. Anything else, Dr. Passero, that you would like to cover as far as that we've missed as far as mood plays with anxiety yeah. and depression? Anything we've missed that, that you find that is that is really important to look at? Sure. Well, um, you know, the, the issues related to there's another thing in the body that can be genetically predisposed, something called, called pyroles. And um, pyroles are compounds that are made in the body. They're not harmful. And certain people due to genetic predispositions make more than others. And the problem with, with pyroles or cryptopyroles particularly is that they, they tend to bind a lot of the zinc and B6 that's floating around in the system. And as we talked about zinc being one of these really important nutrient cofactors for the production of neurotransmitters, the other most important one from the standpoint of a, a vitamin, not a mineral, is vitamin B6. And so if people have really elevated levels of cryptopyrroles in their body, they're just robbing their system of zinc and B6 at the level of the tissue. And it makes it very, very difficult for the brain to be neurochemically balanced if it's deficient in B6 and zinc. And that, that's one where you don't always see that reflected in the blood tests. You really, this is more of a tissue level issue. And so that's a really important test. And then there are some of these really more deeper concepts related to methylation that are incredibly important because what we've realized a very long time ago, which is exactly what methylation relates to, is, is the key for proper neurochemistry balance in the brain actually has very little to do with the actual amount of neurotransmitters. So it's not actually related to serotonin and dopamine and norepinephrine. Mm. It's actually more related to the reuptake channels that are in the neurons. And that's why about 30 years ago or 20 years ago, all of the research on the pharmaceutical side of things related to treating depression moved away from just boosting neurotransmitter levels and moved entirely to manipulating reuptake channels because that's where really the key regulation happens. And that's what you see all the new mood, all the mood drugs of the last 20 years are all in the category of SSRIs or SNRIs. These are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors or selective mm -hmm. serotonin and norepinephrine reuptake inhibitors. All of that is targeted at the reuptake channels. And methylation and understanding your methylation status, not your MTHFR status, this is different. It's looking at your overall methylation status by adjusting that one way or another, some people can be under-methylated, some people can be over-methylated, you have to understand where you're at, but adjusting that methylation status can, over time, significantly balance the reuptake channels in your brain, which is the biggest and most important factor when it comes to neurochemistry balance. And how is that tested? It's actually a very, it's a very simple blood test. Um, it needs to be administered properly. At this point in time, there's not many labs that have the right methodology, but it's simply called a whole blood histamine test. And it's done through a lab in, um, it's done through the most, the biggest national lab, which is LabCorp. But it, the doctor has to know, there's several histamine tests offered through LabCorp. The doctor really has to know which one to order and how to properly interpret it. We use the whole blood histamine test because histamine is a end marker. It's a chemical in the body that's broken down by methylation. So you can use it as an end marker to understand somebody's overall methylation status. You know, the, all of the genes of methylation, how they're working together, not just the MTHFR gene. 
And you do have to understand and be considerate of the fact that a lot of different things can affect a histamine test. You know, is somebody on antihistamines? Are they getting allergy shots? Certain drugs suppress histamine levels. Certain things raise histamine levels, you know. So there's all sorts of things that have to be considered when interpreting that test. But that is the best test that we have right now in assessing methylation issues. And it's actually fairly accurate at understanding what type of therapy somebody's going to respond to. Hmm. Very, very complex. Very complex. I just want to keep picking your brain. <laughs> I know, but I'm almost out of time. I know, I know, I know. I know. And I know it's terrible. <laughs> we want to thank you so much, Dr. Passero, for covering multiple fragmented topics as well. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I know it's a primarily thyroid show, and I will honestly say that, you know, the issues that we covered at the beginning of the show related to thyroid and mood issues are some of the most important but least talked about things related to thyroid, you know, and um, so I'm really glad we were able to share that information and all the other stuff around the neurochemistry, I think, is just it's just icing on the cake and so many people experience or know somebody that experiences a lot of depression or anxiety or some sort of issue. So hopefully it'll, it'll give them some insights and understanding as to different ways they can support their system. Wow. And you explained it so beautifully. And that's why I was so excited to have you on the show sitting in your session at Mary Showman's Me Time Weekend. I understood everything you were saying, and you said it so uh, in layman's layman's terms, I could understand it, and you did just that day. So I'm so thrilled. I totally was with you 100%. We've had a few guests that I get, you know, lost on, and they talk way, way over my head, and uh, you are fabulous. And I'm so glad to, to have met you and to call you my doc and a friend. So thank you. We very much appreciate you being on the show. You guys are so welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. You guys, too. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Talk soon. Talk soon. He's amazing. Just before we – he is amazing, and I love the way he explains things in layman's terms. Right. Very complex issues. He is very eloquent. uh, Yeah, eloquent. He is. Before we forget, you can find all things Dr. Passero at greenhealingnow.com and I love the I love the 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 home page of that there's a screen it's just the beautiful I know it's soothing I, know. I you know, I know websites mean a lot and this is just a very soothing but you can find all things about Dr. Kevin Passero at greenhealingnow.com you can schedule appointments with him and learn all about what green healing wellness does and uh, meet Dr. Passero. It's amazing. Green Healing Wellness uh, Center, and he's in uh, where is he? He's in Washington and Annapolis. So you know you can. He's he's, yeah, Washington, he's pretty accessible. Yeah. So yeah, I just went to the website again. It's Green Healing Now, and um, it is very. It's just uh, soothing. Plus, there's a great picture of him. So uh, you got to check it out. All things Dr. Kevin Passero. Hmm. And he covers lots of things, mood and sleep disorders, allergy relief, botanical medicine, educational workshops, food allergy and sensitivity testing, hypothyroidism, homeopathy. My goodness, hormone replacement. I mean, this is the place, nutritional consulting. And you get Dr. Kevin Passero, which is amazing. The man is amazing. And he listens. He actually listens to his patients. You could hear it in his voice. You could. Just an amazing 
you mm. could and and not to downplay or or, or to you know uh, be a dead horse about my experience if you're listening if you're a listener to the show i I had a recent experience with uh, one of the doctors and um here locally, and it didn't go so well. And I guess basically I didn't feel like he heard me because he really instantly looked at my numbers and just started talking and talked like the whole time. And, you know, there's just so much going on that, you know, someone like Dr. Pacero would be asking questions and listening, and I didn't feel like I had that. So, um, you know, just a profound moment. You know, he's sitting there talking and, and uh, Dr. Pacero is telling us how he handles his clients and the questions he asks and all that kind of stuff, and I'm thinking this is exactly what people need. So call him up, Green Healing Now. <laughs> Wouldn't that be amazing if we all had doctors like him? Mm, It'd be a very different, very different place. Much yes, happier people. Be. As always, a very big thank you to our listeners. Um, we are we're, We do the show for you. We're glad to have you. Check us out on all the different uh, platforms and uh, leave us a review. We'd love to know what you think. Mm-hmm. And as always, please be sure to check out Thyroid Nation Essentials at thyroidnation.com. Just wonderful products that we made for thyroid patients like Brain Awake Inhaler, which is something that Dan and I both <laughs> love. <laughs> Right, we do. Uh, and I kept chatting during the show. Did I tell you that I love our brain awake? And she's like, Yeah, you've said it a few times. And I'm sitting here with it, like basically shoved up my nose. I absolutely love it. That is our number one selling product, brain awake inhaler. Yep. That tells us, yeah. Uh, anyways, yep. we have wonderful things that we made, just natural skincare things that can be beneficial uh, for the thyroid uh, botanically. And um, check them out. We would love it. Clean. Preservative-free, synthetic-free skincare. And I want to add a little side note that um, Tiffany's been in this business a long time, and uh, she's very cautious. She errs on the side of caution uh, <laughs> ten times out of ten. And uh, the products that we have, these blends that we have, are well thought out, and they are for everyone. Anybody can take can use these products. Uh, we just want to patients to have something that didn't mess with their endocrine system and didn't add to their already terrible issues that they're going through daily. And, uh, you know, they complement and support your thyroid. And there are all kinds of things on the market. And you have to be really careful. And we just wanted you to know that we're really careful. And uh, the things, all these things in our products, the... Um, uh, the levels, uh, what's the word? I'm with the concentration levels and the dilution levels and everything that, that Tiffany has done is uh, not going to harm you or be detrimental to your health in any way. And they're all just supportive and great for you. So that's my side note for the day. How about that? I like that. <laughs> I like that. We, uh, yes, I appreciate that very much. We We adhere to all the main professional organizations dilutions aromatherapy is not a regulated science so anyone can pretty much say anything at this particular time which can be for people with chronic illness somewhat scary i have to admit so uh, we approach this particular project with thyroid nation essentials um, as 
uh, as chronically ill patients and the guidelines for those particular subclasses of people is very different than the general population. So I do and, appreciate and both pointing that out. Thyroid, yeah, we both suffer with <clears throat> thyroid disease. And so everything about these is, uh, you know, with that in mind, of course, anybody can use them. My husband loves lots of the products, but we did keep uh, the thyroid, thyroid in mind and both suffer. So Tiffany is very conscious of um, of that when making these products, and there's no preservatives. It's you know, clean, synthetic, free, um, and, you know, we just uh, just wanted to let you know that we, you know, try to stand up to, to all the high standards because there's a lot of people out there that just don't know, and Tiffany does, and she's done her research and her homework, so I just wanted to throw that in there. Oh, well, thank you. <laughs> Appreciate yeah. that. Make sure to follow Thyroid Nation at ThyroidNation.com, on Facebook, all of our social media, and check out our um, Hashis and Graves Facebook support group. Just type in Hashis and Graves. It'll pop up. We always post the upcoming guests and other information, so check that out. Hmm. And most importantly, Dana, and I always want to remind you that wellness is a journey and takes continual maintenance and evaluation, please make sure to always listen to your own body and be mindful of what it is telling you. This goes from everything of what you put on your skin to what you choose to eat to moods and different types of symptoms that may be going on. You may be going for five years perfectly fine on your you know, thyroid or supplements or whatever it is, and then you have something where you start not to feel well, you need to be mindful of what your body is telling you. Things have changed. And more importantly than anything that you do, you need to continually check in with yourself and that dynamic system um, that we were given. So uh, we always want to remind you, please, to do that. That's probably one of the most important things that you can do on a daily basis. That's right. Listen to your own body. And be mindful of what it is telling you because it talks to you. It does. It does. It totally does. It does. It does. Okay, so guys, why do we choose to listen or not? Well, that's the up hard to you, part. but it does, right? Uh, right? This is Diana, your thyroid mission, Grangatika, who used to live in Costa Rica. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Tiffany Milanich of Grateful Garden bringing the collective voice of thyroid thrivers worldwide so that together, united, we heal. Thanks, guys. See you next week. Should be a fun show with Teresa Tapp. It's going to get you moving. (laughs) Yes, yes. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Wednesday.